The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to bromleytownchurch.com. Right, if you just want to settle into your seats, we're just going to look at our video. Become a man, become flesh. Leave all glory, all splendor, all majesty. Leave that behind. Be born as a baby of a virgin in a stable. As a man, walk the earth. Preach the gospel. Preach righteousness. Preach love. Serve the poor. Heal the sick. Heal the leper. Give sight to the blind. Let the lame walk. Expel demons. Face the devil himself and overcome. Raise up followers. Teach them. Instruct them. Send them. Model truth. Live a perfect life. Live a perfect, sinless life. Go to the cross. Become the sacrifice. Become sin. Take the wrath of God upon yourself. Endure rejection. Pay the price. Let all sin fall upon you. Defeat the powers of darkness. Conquer the grave. Finish it. Display the power of God. Rise again. So all mankind can be forgiven. Healed. Accepted. Made righteous. So all of creation can receive blessing. Share your riches, have abundant life, and be connected back to God. Do all this, and you will save the world. Hallelujah. Amen. We've been talking over the last few weeks about the Jesus mission, and that's what we're going to carry on with today. Let me just pray before we start. Father, we want to bow before you. Lord, we come because we need your presence. We need you, oh God, in this place. Each one of us, Lord, has come from busy weeks, doing all sorts of different things, meeting with many different people. But it's our heart's desire that we may encounter you. You, oh Lord, are the source of all things. You are the great I am. You are the Lord of all creation, and we desire to encounter you. So we pray now, Father, open our hearts, open our minds to the glory of you, that we may understand you, that you may bring that wisdom, that understanding of yourself to our hearts, that we may know you and that we may walk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So, as I say, we've been looking at the mission, Jesus' mission, and we looked the first week at Mission Commence, and we saw how Jesus' mother was very much involved with the beginning and the commencement of his mission. Then last week we were looking at him choosing and training the 12, the 12 apostles, gathering his disciples together, training them, and all the work that went into that. And so we come to this week, the third in this series. This is the mission declared. It's about the, the, the specifics, if you like, the mission specifics. The fact that Jesus now is coming to the final part of his mission, and we want to see exactly what he came to do. So really, first of all, we want to look at this fact that Jesus, having been with his disciples, having spent time with them, having se- them having seen him heal people, walk with people, all sorts of teaching that he'd done, we'd been going through this and several days and weeks have been passing, if not years have been passing of this. And then suddenly there comes a day, a moment, when Jesus asks his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? It's a famous passage in scripture And Jesus just says to his disciples, who are the people saying that I am? Now the reason he would have asked this is because many people were beginning to understand that he was the Messiah. And the Messiah, that is the sent one, the anointed one. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. But there was a lot of, how can we say, there was a lot of non-understanding of what this Messiah was actually going to be like. Some were saying he was the servant and he was coming to serve people. Many were saying, well, he's going to be a king, and he's coming, therefore, to rule and to reign. And with this idea of him being a king and yet also a servant, there was also this political understanding, well, if he's going to be a king, then he's going to bring a reign. And if he's going to bring a reign, there's going to be an overthrow, especially of these wretched Romans who are ruling over us at the moment. So there was a lot of, I'm not quite sure what it's all going to look like, but there was a hope that as a nation they were going to be liberated. Now, of course, we know that that is true, but it wasn't quite as they actually were thinking at the time because they had this political aspiration. They had this hope that the Romans were going to be destroyed and therefore that Israel and Jerusalem was going to come back and and this Messiah was going to be king over there. So there was a lot of intrigue going on. So Jesus asked them this question, well, well, guys, who who are people saying that I am? Are some saying that I'm the Messiah? Are some saying that I'm going to be a king? Are some saying that I'm a prophet? And of course the reply came back, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're like Elijah. So this is coming back. But then Jesus comes and asks Peter and he says, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says to him, listen, this is amazing. This isn't coming just from yourself This is a blessing for God has revealed that to you, Peter. And having been through that situation, then suddenly Jesus turns to them, and it says this, and I'm reading now from Matthew 16, verse 21. It's going to come up on that screen. (laughs) No point in me looking there. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. Notice that, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day to be raised back to life. Jesus is now declaring the final portion of his mission. He's announcing it to them. And you'd expect, when you're trying to actually lay out some vision, and you're trying to say to the people, right guys, 
this is exactly what we're going to do now. Right, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And he's actually telling them what's going to happen. He's saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's not going to be that good. We're going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the laws. And actually, I'm going to be killed. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Now, I don't know what we would be. Obviously, we know the end from the beginning. So there's a sense in which we don't really get involved with this on the understanding of the disciples. The disciples hear this, and it literally says, what? What's all this about? Hang on, we've been going around. We've been having a great time. We've been seeing crowds of people come. We've been seeing miracles happen. What is it that you're saying? And actually, if we look at the same story in the book of Luke, it says this. It says, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Verse 34 of that passage says this. The disciples did not understand any of this. It's good, isn't it? They didn't understand any of it. It says its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. So it's rather strange. Here we are coming to the end of the mission. Jesus is clearly declaring that what is written about him in the prophets, this is going to happen to him. He's laying it before them. And those people around him, okay, Jesus, whatever. We don't really understand. This doesn't compute to us. And so that's where we get to. So today we want to understand the mission specifics, the mission that Jesus came to do. We're going to look at it under three points. Some of those points have got other sub-points. First of all, the what. The what. What Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? So in one sense, we're looking at the end of the mission, but we're also looking at the whole mission. We want to just take a big picture view for a moment. What did Jesus come to do? We gave this scripture right at the very beginning of this talk. Matthew 1, 21, we're talking, the angel is talking to Mary. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save sinners. Luke 19 verse 10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Matthew 9 is talking about Jesus being invited to Matthew's house and there he's sitting amongst all the, the tax collectors who were known to be sinners as far as the Jewish religious leaders were concerned. So here's Jesus, this guy who's preaching and teaching about righteousness, and yet he's sitting there amongst all of these sinners, amongst these literally ungodly people who steal money from people, who are collecting taxes for the opposition, the Romans. He's sitting there eating amongst them, and the Pharisees, they saw this and they say to Jesus' disciples, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Then Jesus says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The reason that Jesus came was to come and to seek sinners 
and to save sinners. Now let's just be clear about that. Does that include us? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So Jesus came to seek and to save people just like us. He came to rescue them from their sins. It's summed up, isn't it, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The what, what Jesus came to do, let's be quite clear about this, he came to save sinners. Point two, the how. We have the what, now we have the how. How was Jesus going to save sinners? And for us now to get hold of this, the how, how was he going to do it, I want us to have a bit of an overview, a step back and to look back across the scriptures, particularly over the Old Testament, to get an overview of sacrifice and substitution. So there's a little bit more understanding that I want to bring to you this morning. And I don't think it's going to, several of the stories you'll get hold of quite quickly. But the subheading under there, as you can see, first of all, the consequences of sin. We know that Jesus came to save sinners, okay? That's good news. He came to save sinners, and we are sinners, so that's good news. But there, we need to understand why that was necessary. There is consequences to sin. Ezekiel 18 says this, the person who sins is the one who will die. Hebrews 9 says this, just as man is destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. You see, there is a consequence to sin. When we sin, we are breaking God's laws. His rules, his way that he has given for mankind to live. There is a way that seems right unto a man, and that way is for the walk in the ways of God. God has his ways. They are good ways. They are ways to help us. They are ways to encourage us. They are ways to give us the fullness of life. Those ways are the ways that we want to walk in. And they are so good, and they will encourage us so much that we want to walk in those ways. But guess what? We find ourselves trying to walk in those ways, but failing at them. And, oh, but God, I know you said this, but I've done this. I know this is the way that I should walk, but unfortunately I've done this. I recognize that's a good way to live, but unfortunately for me, this is what I have done. I have lied. I have cheated. I have sinned in many ways. That is what I have done. I have broken your laws. And like breaking any law, there is a punishment attached to the breaking of the law. Now, if you think of the fact of speeding, 30 mile an hour limit, 40 mile an hour limit, or whatever it is, we know that those limits are around. And we know that we should keep to those limits. Because that is the law. Am I speaking the truth? Now, there's a problem with this because we know sometimes, very rarely very rarely, that sometimes we may exceed those limits. Has anybody exceeded those limits? Don't have to put up... I can see somebody pointing at somebody else. That's rather unfair, don't you feel? If we're going to face up, we must face up ourselves. I confess that I have at times, once or twice, in the whole of my life, exceeded a limit. I am sorry. Now, the point is... The point is, I say this as an example, because we know that we have crossed this line, but you know what? Have we been caught? 
we got away with it. So there's a sense in which there isn't really any punishment for the law, but actually that one time when he went through, I was talking to my brother-in-law yesterday, and, and he's had a good record, but he said he was driving in Eastbourne in a 30-mile limit, 37 miles an hour, he gets caught. Three points and a fine for you, sir. It's a bit harsh. Now, you can get around that by going to a training course all about speeding. Anybody been on those training courses? Don't, don't, no. We don't need to have public confession. That can come later on, okay? But it's good for the soul. You see, there is laws of this land, and the laws of the land are, if you get caught for breaking the law, there is a punishment. We understand that. When it comes to God's law, God is super righteous, and super organized, super holy. But he also, there are consequences of the breaking of his laws. When we lie, when we cheat, when we deceive, when we get drunk, all sorts of things that I could mention about our sexual behavior, about our thought life, about the words that are coming out of our mouths, about the attitudes that we hold to other people, about the things we say behind their back. There's a whole raft of things that we don't actually have to dig very much when you suddenly think, oh, 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 yes. When we sin, as far as God is concerned, there is a punishment to sin, and that punishment is death. We must understand there are consequences to sin. Sometimes those consequences start to work their way out in our lives. That as we've been living a sinful life, there is a, we've been sowing into it, and therefore there is a, re a reaping of what we have sown. There are results of the way that we have been behaved. But we must understand there are consequences for sin. And you know what the consequence of sin that God brings to all those who have sinned? He said that the soul that sins shall die, that man is destined to, to die once and after that face judgment. So there's a fair trial that will be given to everybody when everybody will be tested for the things that they have done. It's almost like there will be a video shown. By the way, you're saying, I've not done that. Up it comes. Clear evidence that you are guilty. And the consequence of that, an eternity in hell. We don't like to talk about these things because it's extremely unpalatable, extremely nasty to think about. But we must be clear in what I'm talking about this morning that there is a consequence to any sin and the consequence of sin before God is judgment and the judgment that he has already decreed is that those who sin shall die and there is an eternity waiting for sinners in hell itself. I don't think I'll finish there because that's a little bit of a, a tough note. Let's move on to point two. The sacrificial system. Okay, now we're going over to books like Leviticus, one of your favorite books of the Bible. When you go back to the Old Testament and we see how the children of Israel came out of Egypt and how God started to unveil his laws. This is the way I want you to live. So he was telling them how to live, but also in those early laws, he started to instruct them in the ways of sacrifice. And why did he teach them about sacrifice? Because right at the very beginning, he wanted to introduce them a sacrificial system. God knew 
the way that man was. He knew that the heart of man is desperately wicked above all things. So he knew what man is like. God's not deceived by the way that we are, but God wanted to help us out. So for the Israelites, he said, listen, when you sin and you know that you sin, then there are ways that you can get peace with me, and that is by offering sacrifice. And so, for instance, in the book of Leviticus, which some think is a very heavy book, and it is a bit heavy, but actually it's not, because it gives you a full understanding of actually here is a God who is already saying to a people, you've done wrong? I want to draw you back to myself. You've lost relationship with me? I want relationship back. He's crying out for relationship with people. And so he is saying, there is a way for us to get right with each other, but it is through sacrifice. Sacrifice costs something. It costs the life of another that you might be set free. There is the whole issue of sacrifice. There is the issue of substitution. A life is given to pay the price of what you have done wrong. That is what's being laid out before us through the whole book of Leviticus. And there we are being shown how important this is. There's justice that is being wrought. I, because you have done something wrong, you are justly going to be punished for that. But I want to show mercy. And mercy triumphs over justice. So justice has to be done. A life needs to be given for the sin that you have committed. But I want to save you. I want to show you mercy. So the life of a sheep, the life of a bull, the life of a goat can be given that you might know freedom, that you might know forgiveness, that you might be set free. Leviticus 4, for instance, sets out, uh, and in part of that it's talking about the sin offering. And it's talking here about a whole Israelite community. So I've just taken from verse 13. Let me read a few verses to you. If the whole Israelite community unintentionally uh, sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. That, if you like, is the legal parameters put out. If the community have done something wrong, even if they're unaware of it, oh, we didn't recognize that was wrong. Oh, even if they're unaware of it, they are guilty. Why? Because they have done what is wrong. So they're in a problem. But God wants to get them out of that problem. When they become aware of the sin they have committed, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and, prevent, and present it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the bull's blood into the tent of meeting. He shall dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle it before the Lord seven times in front of the curtain. He is to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is before the Lord in the tent of the meeting. The rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the fat from it and burn it on the altar and do with this bull just as he did with the bull for the sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement, will make the people right, and they will be forgiven. Then he shall take the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. This is the sin offering for the whole community. Now, 
you may not understand all of those bits and pieces. It's not necessarily important for us. But the principle I want you to see is when we sin unintentionally, there is the necessity for a sacrifice. In this case, the people lay their hands on the animal. What are they doing? They're saying, listen, there's a transference. This animal is a substitute for me. There has to be punishment for sin. Do you hear that? There has to be punishment for sin because that's justice being done. And so the people identify. They lay their hands on the bull. They confess their sins. Then the bull is killed. The life of the bull is taken away. And the bull is dying in the place of the person. Justice is done. A substitute is made for your sin. And therefore, the person who has sinned is able to still enjoy relationship with God. That is the principle behind the whole sacrificial system. You go free, but somebody else is paying the price. And God is satisfied because he has laid this out. He is satisfied with that sacrifice and mercy is given to the sinner. Now, as I say, all of this can be read in Leviticus. Um, and it's worth reading that book through because you see many different aspects of sacrifice there that were given. Let me just leave this with you. There is always cost in sacrifice. There's always cost. For the Israelites, it was that you have to pay for the animal. You've got to buy the animal. You've got to give the animal. That, you could have used that for your own food. You could have used it to actually uh, grow your crops and things like that. That animal was very useful, had a value to you, and you were giving that animal. So there was a cost to you for that. There is a cost in sacrifice. I also want to mention here as well, as far as the New Testament concerns, there is also a problem with these sacrifices. For in the New Testament it says this, it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you think, well, why was all this put in place? Well, God wanted as a system at that time to show the Israelites how they could get away from their sins, how they could be forgiven. So we understand the sacrificial system. Let's just move on now to the Passover. So now this is going back bef before they received these commands about the sacrificial system. We're going back to Egypt. In Egypt, there, Israel was slaves. And God sought to do, sent many plagues upon Egypt to actually break the nation and to show that he was God, to make a display of his glory. And the last of the plagues that he sent upon them was to say that every firstborn, animal and human, was going to die. God was going to send his angel over the nation, and every firstborn animal and every firstborn human being in every family was going to die. But he said to the Israelites, I want to save you. So you need to do this. You need to gather around, you need to get a lamb. You need to kill that lamb. And as you kill it and its blood is pouring out, you need to take that blood and you need to put it on the doorposts of your homes. And every home where that angel sees the blood over the door, the angel will pass over that home. And no one in that home will die. But if he comes to a home and there's no blood on the door, then the angel will bring death to the firstborn in that house. Now, we know the story. This was a terrible situation. 
And as the last of the plagues, when the, this plague hit Egypt, that was enough. The Egyptians said, you must go. The Israelites must go and they must worship their God. But what we see here is that God again, he is showing that he is redeeming, that he is wanting to save his people. He's wanting to help his people. But he does that by showing that something, some, th- some animal, in this case it's an animal, must give their life to stand in the place of the firstborn so that they will not be destroyed. And therefore the angel will pass over them. It says in Exodus, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. In the Passover, the judgment of God was seen over the land And you had to have someone to pay the price so that you could escape. It was the lamb that was sacrificed, whose blood was put on the doorposts. The sacrifice was made. A substitute has stepped in. And in the Passover, the mercy of God was seen in that the blood gave full protection to everybody who had it over their doorposts. So we're just looking at these pictures. Sacrifices, the Passover, and what happened at the Passover. And then we have scriptures as well. Now, I'm not going to read all the scriptures to you, but for instance, Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah writes, and it's down there in Isaiah 53, a whole passage which is known as the passage of the suffering servant. Jesus would have had these passages, and Jesus would have read these passages, and Jesus would have known from these passages what was lying ahead of him. Perhaps I'll just read a couple of verses from it. Just before I read this, I'm going to pray. So can we just all pray? Heavenly Father, we need your presence and your glory in this place. Father, we have come here to hear your word. We have come here, O God, to be inspired by you, O God. And we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you come and that you fill this place. Father, will you break every opposition? Will you break every hindrance to your word flowing into our hearts? Lord, will you bring awakening to our minds and to our understanding? Father, we need you and we seek for you. You alone are the one who can give us wisdom and understanding. You are the God of all revelation. We come before you, O God, to say, reveal the mystery of yourself and what you have done on the cross to us. We desire to understand your mission. We desire to understand your ways. Our hearts, oh God, need you. For Father, when we see you and what you have done and what you are like, we learn to love you more and more. And it is our heart's desire that we should serve you and that we should see not only our lives transformed by your power, but the lives of many people who do not know you, who are still under the consequences of their sins, that they should be set free as well. So Father, move in this place, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 53, it says this, Who has believed our message? Or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? My servant grew up. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us about him. The prophet is talking about Jesus Christ. It says, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him 
and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants, he will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. It's worth reading this chapter fully through, because you would have seen there that Jesus, having known this, he would have understood what the final part of his mission was all about. All of the things that I've been talking about, sacrifice, what sacrifice meant to the Jews, how sacrifice took place as far as the Jews were concerned, this whole thing of the Passover, what God had done previously, how the blood, and when the, the let me understand, the Jewish understanding of the blood, when you talk about blood, I always think about this sort of like, this red stuff that people are throwing around, and that's all a bit weird, okay? That seems weird. When the Jews talk about blood, they're talking about the fact that somebody has died. There's been death. That's why they talk, there's life in the blood. So in other words, when the blood is there and it's inside of you, you're alive. But you know what? When you get cut, when you get knifed, the blood starts to flow out. So it's not just like I've had a scratch. What they're saying is, when they're talking about blood, they're saying there's been death. A life has been given. So they're talking about the blood of the lamb. What they mean is that lamb was killed. A sacrifice was made. A death came about that you might receive a benefit from it. So we're talking about the blood. It means we're talking about death has come. Without the shedding of blood, without death, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So it's important for us to understand there needs to be a sacrifice. And yet we're also understanding actually the blood of these bulls, these goats, which have been going on for years, which God said would act as a way of drawing my people back to myself. Yeah, that's good, but it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. And Jesus came. What was his mission? His mission was to save sinners. He came with all of the knowledge of this Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the Passover, the reading of Scripture itself. He came all into this, and he knew what his final mission was. What's my final mission, he says to his disciples? My final mission, if I can find the verse again. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and that he must rise on the third day. This third point, the end of the mission now, is in sight. He goes to Jerusalem. We heard today's Palm Sunday. There he is entering into Jerusalem. Everybody's saying like, wow, here he comes. This is the guy who could actually save us. This guy could be our king. This guy could overthrow the Romans. This guy is good. We're looking to him. Praise him. He's in Jerusalem. But why did he go to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is where the temple is. What happens at the temple is where sacrifice is made. He had to come to the place where God has his name and it is at that place is where you need to offer sacrifice to me. He came to Jerusalem because the Jerusalem was the place where sacrifice was made. But what do we read about the sin offering? When the sin offering is made, the body is taken outside of the camp. And Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem on the hill called Calvary. That is where he was crucified. That is where the Lamb of God, John the Baptist had said, and we've heard about this, behold the Lamb of God, the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend. 
he is the one. He is the one. And he went around saying, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain on the Passover, whose blood was put on the doorposts. What happened when the angel of death came? It passed over. And here the Lamb of God, who is slain for the sin of the whole world. Jesus had come, and his mission was to go to Jerusalem. But he went to Jerusalem because that was the place where he was going to offer his life as a sacrifice. Jesus came to Jerusalem to suffer many things because he knew that there is always a cost in sacrifice. Now for us also, I'll say this, there is a mystery in sacrifice. There's a mystery in suffering. We don't like suffering. We don't like pain. But there's something about it that God has called us to. And he said that if we're going to follow Jesus, then we need to pick up our cross. There's going to be sufferings for us too, just as there were sufferings for him. Jesus knew that he had to give his life. So yes, for him, the burden, the agony of going to Jerusalem, he knew what he was going to face. He'd read what it says in Isaiah 53, that he was going to be bruised, that he was going to suffer for our transgressions. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew that he was going to Jerusalem to be killed because he knew without the shedding of blood there was going to be no forgiveness of sins. He knew that the law required that everything be cleansed with blood and that without the shedding of blood there would be no forgiveness. So here the Lamb of God came He came to Jerusalem. He came to give his life. He came to save sinners. And we have been redeemed. This Lamb of God came to take our punishment and to stand in our place. He substituted his life for every one of our lives. He came to take what was due, the justice for our sin. He substituted himself into that place. And he gave his life for us. Peter says this in his letter. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then it says, on the third day, he was raised to life. But we'll have more of that next week. Let's just stand together. Guys, do you want to come back? This subject is a a heavy subject in the point of view it's talking about sacrifices, it's talking about sins, it's talking about hell, it's talking about all of those things. But in truth, if we were in Egypt today and we were looking to be taken out of Egypt, out of our slavery, out of our bondage, and we didn't know about the Passover lamb, the angel of death when it comes over at night, 
our homes would be affected. The firstborn in every home would have died. But when we read of what the power of the blood on those doorposts, the angel passes by. The reason there is no longer sacrifices being made, animals being killed and slaughtered for sin is because they won't take away sin. But there is one sacrifice that has been made. Jesus Christ is our Savior and he came to save us from our sins. He came to offer his life completely. He came to lay his life down. He didn't cry out. The reason he was silent before his captures was because he was like a lamb before it was slaughtered. It doesn't make a noise. It's silent. The Lamb of God was slain for your sin and for my sin. He went to that cross bearing our punishment. He went to that cross because of his love, because he wanted to set us free. He wants relationship with us. So this man called a lamb because it's just identifying was the sacrifice that was given for the sins of the whole world. For God truly so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and that it is by faith in what Jesus has done for us that we may be set free.